Hey folks, thanks for joining us at Fig Tree Ministries. There's two ways you can keep up with us. The first one is to subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking the subscribe button below. That way you'll get notified every time we upload a new video. The second way is to go to figtreeteaching.com and sign up for our newsletter. We send out a newsletter twice per month. Each newsletter will highlight one of our videos and include a lesson plan to help you go deeper into your studies. That website again is figtreeteaching.com. Enjoy today's lesson. Okay, so this is the fourth week on parables. And part of the reason we have to really dig into these is because one third of all Jesus' teaching is parables. And if we don't understand what's going on with a parable and how they're structured and how Jesus uses it, then we'll often misread a parable. And very early on in church history, we misread them. And some of the early church leaders misapplied information in the parables. And so for about a thousand years, we never read them any differently. Until people, scholars later started coming back saying, oh, wait a minute, maybe we should take a look at this parable again and re-examine our original thinking. Much of the scholarship in the last 100 years is going back to how do we approach a parable? Welcome to our class, but I just want to let you know, last week we did a lot of information, so if you feel behind, tell me and I'll, okay. I always feel bad if someone walks in and we've, we've already had like a ton of information the week before and now you're going, what the heck are they talking about? All right, so the parable of the wicked tenants or the wicked husbandmen, and that is somebody whose there's obligation is to take care of a field, take care of a, the farm, the field for somebody else. Now, what I want to do this week is we're going to look at the same parable, but I want to read it from Matthew. Because Matthew and Luke each add a sentence that Mark didn't, so that's very normal in biblical editing, as if Mark wrote first, then Luke takes the copy, starts to rewrite the story, and adds details. Generally, editors won't remove details. So they wouldn't take something out, but they'll add for clarification. And you see that all over Luke as he's clarifying, or even Matthew, clarifying something that Mark wrote. At least that's how scholars view the progress of the writing of the of the four Gospels, except for John. John's kind of out there in his own little spiritual world. All right, so turn, if you would, to Matthew 21. We'll go sentence by sentence, and I'm just going to review where these things showed up. Well, this is what we did last week, as each of these, as we see in this parable, it's quite complex. Jesus is pulling from a lot of different things, and putting information in and then twisting it to get the story changed, which then heightens it in the mind of the listener. And they start to say, oh, wait a minute. He loves, Jesus loves to shock his listener by adding a twist that they're, that they're not expecting. Okay, so the parable sounds like this. Now, this is just one correction you could see from Matthew. Listen to another parable is how he starts out. Now, Mark starts out, Jesus told them parables but then he proceeds in telling him one parable. So at least this one looks like it's one parable. Okay, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. 
Now, where is that? What's he bringing your mind back to from last week? Isaiah chapter 5. So Isaiah 5 is almost those exact words. And in Isaiah, it's God who has a vineyard, and he, he builds a wall around it. He digs out a wine press. He does all this stuff, and he plants the choicest of all fruits. But then what happens in Isaiah? The fruit turns out bad. The vineyard that was supposed to produce good fruit didn't. And so in Isaiah, God's just upset with Israel. Israel is the vineyard. But that's, he starts him out in Isaiah, but now watch as he adds a twist. Because if you read the Isaiah story, there are no tenant farmers. So when he says, then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, the crowd says, oh, wait a minute. Who are the farmers now? And that's what we want to figure out. Who's Jesus talking about? And of course, as we noted last week, it's those pesky religious leaders that are corrupting everything. How do we know that? Well, he rented the vineyard out to farmers and moved to another place. When harvest time approached, he sent his servants to collect his fruit. Now, that's important because in Isaiah, the vineyard wasn't producing fruit. But in Jesus' parable, he sa- in this parable, there was fruit being produced. So he's saying, look, there's nothing wrong with the people in Israel. It's these tenant farmers that are keeping the fruit from God. So he's, that's where he begins to twist in uh, to change the story. Okay, verse 35 to 39. The tenants, of course, now he's gonna now he's gonna start twisting the knife, right? The tenants seize his oh, seize his servants. They beat one, they kill another, they stone one. He sent the servants to them, more servants. They treated them the same way. So you can see what he's doing. He's full. It's all hyperbole. He's he's embellishing the story so that everyone realizes just how awful these tenants are. But then get to verse 37. Last of all, who sent who? His son. And right there, now he brings in, as we looked at in detail last week, Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 is how the nations are conspiring against the new king, and God says, I will adopt you as my son. Today I become your father. Psalm 2 is now in here. So. And by God, those priests know it. They know exactly where he's going once he starts laying this on. So here's what they said. When the tenants saw the son, they said to one another. Now, that's important because if you Psalm 2, as we talked about last week, the nations are colluding against the son. So are the tenants now colluding against the son? Yes, this is, this is collusion. They got together and said, let's kill him and take the inheritance. And in Psalm 2, you notice, God says, I'm going to give you, my son, the inheritance. So there's all these little details coming from Psalm 2 into Jesus' parable. That's why it's so complex. We've got Isaiah 5, Psalm 2. We'll look at some. There's more to come on top of that. Okay. So they took him. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, Matthew tells this a little bit different. Matthew asks the question, and the crowd responds. Mark didn't do that. 
So it says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Bye. So then, the, apparently, they, whoever they is, whether it's the crowd or the priests or whomever, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent to the vineyard to others, and those will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Now, this is where he's now going to bring in another piece of Old Testament, Psalm 118. So Jesus said, and then this is, as I was talking last week, my favorite verse of all, because he's speaking to people who have their Bible memorized. Haven't you ever read the scripture? If I said that right to a, to a room full of uh, seminary professors, the smoke would start coming out of their ears. Who do you think you are? Of course we've read the scripture. So you can understand why these priests get so mad when he's, hey, haven't you read the scripture? And of course they're like, ah, yes. And then he quotes them a scripture that everybody knows. This, isn't, this is like John 3.16 to them. So he says, haven't you ever read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected. Now we have to figure out what's he talking about? Who's the stone and who's the builders? The stone the builders rejected has become the head of the corner or the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. Not human beings. Who can make the, the stone the builders rejected the head of the corner? Only God can. Not a human being. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Now, look at verse 44. This is why I wanted to use Matthew, because he adds this little phrase right here. So Jesus just says, the stone the builders rejected will become the, cor the head of the corner. And then he says, anyone who falls on this stone. So he's talking about the same stone. He says, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And oh, by the way, anyone on whom the, the stone falls will be crushed. So any way you look at it, watch out. And I'll show you the parallel to this that comes from rabbinic Judaism and how they interpret this phrase. Okay, now here's the ending. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd. The people thought he was a prophet. So how do the people of Israel like Jesus? They love him. They love it. This guy's taken on the establishment. They're happy about it. Very often, what we, we, very often in our Christian traditions, we like to say all Jews hated Jesus. Not true. And scholars have come, come around to say, no, hun hundreds of thousands, or at least thousands, really loved his message. But those religious leaders at the top we're not happy about it. So it's a little bit tough to, when we read our New Testament to place that all the, all the blame on all the people at the same time. So that's our parable, broken up with all commentary from last week. 
So we've got a whole bunch of things happening in here. And of course, you can see right away, if we don't know our Old Testament, at least to them, it's their Bible. There is no Old and New Testament yet. It's just their scriptures. But if we don't know it that well, we miss all these little pieces that are popping up in there. And Jesus, of course, he's making up the parable, so he's inserting them for very particular reasons. Okay, so what we see, the thing that's unknown. So as way of review, parables are always trying to show you something that's unknown or difficult. The kingdom of God. God's relationship to man. Man's relationship to one another. It's always something that's hard to explain, and, they, and then a parable will use something known. The kingdom of God is like a woman who put yeast in bread. The kingdom of God is like a mustard tree. So they're using something that the people know to compare. The word parable means to cast alongside. You take something that's difficult and you cast alongside something known. And that's where you see that in all of Jesus' parables. So he's saying, look, I'm telling you who I am, and I'm going to use all these things. I'm going to take you through Isaiah 5. I'm going to tell you that I'm the son in Psalm 2. As we'll see today, I'm the son of David. That's a messianic term. And I'm also the stone the builders rejected. And he's weaving these all into this amazing collage of who Jesus' identity is. At the same time, he's going after those religious leaders. You're the tenants in the farm. You're the ones who are going to get kicked out. You're just like the nations in Psalm 2 that are conspiring to kill the son. And God laughs at you. And we'll see later, at one of the interpretations, he's going to call them the enemy. Now, you can imagine if somebody is very popular with the people and he calls the establishment the enemy of the people, how, does, how, did the, how do the establishment respond? They're not happy about it. And, of course, those priests are not happy about what Jesus is up to or what he's saying about them. Okay, so today we're going to look at Psalm 118 and the idea of the stone the builders rejected, and that's going to bring us to David. And then we have to do some cultural thinking about Messiah. What are these people looking for, and where do they get these ideas from? I want to give you one cultural piece just to help you think about the idea that for a long time, they're looking for a Messiah to show up, someone who's going to deliver them. Now, they were wrong in that they wanted a king to come reign and get rid of the Romans. And, of course, Jesus said, that's not how I'm going to do it. My kingdom, I'm going to die and become the king. What? That doesn't make any sense. We want our king to live and be the king. He says, it's not the way it works. In God's kingdom, you forgive. It's about loving your neighbor. It's not about power and might and all of that. There's one document that I want to show you. Yes. Well, there's clues in the text because Messiah is the anointed one, and the anointed one means king is the king. So, in a sense, they're looking for a king, and Jesus is king of king and lord lord of lords. So he, in a sense, is our king. 
Um, where the, the sun starts to move in is Psalm 2, something like that. A king shows up and God says, you are, not, you are my son, I'll be your father. And that creates this father-son relationship that's a little bit strange to them, but it applies to, it's a messianic type psalm. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to introduce, this is a document called the Psalms of Solomon. Now, how many people have heard of that? It's not written by Solomon. That's a, it's part of what they call the pseudepigrapha because it's written under the pseudonym of Solomon. They want their document to become famous, so they put Solomon's name on it. Now, it's not part of Scripture at all, so I don't want you to say, wait a minute, is this thing inspired? No, but it's a document that is around at the time of Jesus. So here's how the timeline goes a little bit. Let's just say this is Jesus on our timeline. Somewhere around 33, and I know scholars debate whether it's a little bit before that or not, but let's just call it 33 A.D. that Jesus is crucified. So at some point, Jesus is born, and that would be 0 A.D. or whatever you call it. Not 0 A.D., it'd be 1. However they do that calendar business. Okay, now what had happened previously to Israel? They were ruling themselves because of the Maccabees overthrew the Greeks. Suddenly the, the Israelites are ruling themselves, but the problem is they became just as corrupt as everybody else. And then in 63 BC, who shows up? Rome. Now, Tell me how you feel. How happy are you if you're a Jew living in Jerusalem and you just got taken over again by Gentiles? And that image there is a painting of General Pompey entering the temple. You happy about that? So you can, yes, defiling God's house. Once again, we've got these Gentiles coming in and ruining God's kingdom. And, oh, by the way, who's colluding with the Gentiles? The priests. So, oh, they're not happy with that corrupt priesthood, and they're not happy with the fact that now we're back under Gentile rule. Into that comes a document. So if you turn over, it's on the backside of your handout. So they don't, we don't have a date. There's no copyright that says, you know, 49 B.C., this was printed in Jerusalem or wherever. But scholars note, and this, does, this is not debated, that in, this, in these documents, the Psalms of Solomon, there's mention of not only the corrupt priests, but Pompey showing up and Rome. So that's why they date it to at least after Rome showed up. It's anywhere from 50 to 45 is generally the dates you see for this document. And what they're doing is they're pulling scripture forward from their Old Testament and now they're going to start weaving what they call psalms together to tell you a story. This is where it shows up. So in Jesus day this document would have been floating around somewhere or at least this would show you what people were thinking about. And the Psalms of Solomon Basically, we find a couple different things. One, it's clearly anti-Roman. They want to cleanse Jerusalem of everything bad. Two, it's anti-corrupt priesthood. 
They're not happy with the priests, particularly for colluding with Rome. And then the last one is, you get this amazing description of the Messiah in some of the final chapters of this. So what we're going to read today are just some of the verses about the Messiah. And I think things, your spidey senses should begin to tingle for what they're looking for, at least. Yes. Yeah, now let me, let me back up. That's, that's exactly true. Let me back up just one second here. You brought something to mind. Somewhere around, and we don't know exactly the date, 100 B.C., let's just put it, let's call it 100, the priesthood and the temple had become so corrupted by the leaders that you begin to see factions splitting off. There's a group of priests, and they say, that temple is so corrupt, we're going to go out to the desert and prepare the way for the Lord. We call them the Essenes. They wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were rejecting the temple authority because it was corrupted. And they said, you know what? God's going to bring about a new age and we'll come back and a new temple and we'll rule because we're the chosen people. At the same time, you find another group that splits off. Their name is Perushim, which means the separate ones. Now, what do we call the Perushim in English? The Pharisees. So the Pharisees arrive on the scene in this corrupted time, and they said, we're going to separate ourselves and be righteous. What's that? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, we kind of lambast the Pharisees for, you know, for, for being hypocrites, but they're really trying to obey God. And now, do, do Christians sometimes go overboard when it comes to obeying God? Of course we do. Yeah, I mean, it gets, it gets almost nutty, the things that people, will, the lengths that people will go in the name of obedience. Anyways, so yes, it's very difficult for them to get rid of that priesthood, particularly when it's corrupted. And uh, you, what you see is a, a lot of that factioning happening. So the Pharisees, the Essenes, and of course, the regular people were just fed up with all of it. Okay. So anti-Roman, anti-corrupt priesthood, description of Messiah. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this sheet, and I just want to read for you some of the verses. And you, I, I wanted to give this to you. You can go back at home and read it over again. But watch how some of these just kind of stand out. So the first one is, look at verse 21 and 22. So behold, O Lord, and raise up to them their king. And how do they describe that? Son of David. Now, that's what we went over last week, that that term, Son of David, is the Messiah. So they know that they're talking about the Messiah now. So it says, raise up unto them their king, the Son of David, at the time known to you. Now, what does Paul say about the timing of Jesus? When the time had fully come, God sent his son. It's this idea that God knows exactly the perfect timing to send his son to deal with everything that's going on. Okay, verse 21 finishes, in order that he may reign over Israel, your servant. Now, verse 22, and gird him with strength that he may shatter unrighteous rulers. Now, the rest of the sentence is going to go to talk about Gentiles. So who are the unrighteous rulers? The priests. It's not, because look at the rest of the sentence. And that he may purge Jerusalem from Gentiles 
who trample her down to destruction. So that's now commenting on the priests and the Romans. So you can see that they're, they're not happy about it. Okay, so right here we get that son of David shows up. Now look at verse 23 and 24. Wisely, righteously, he shall, tr- he th- shall thrust out sinners from the inheritance. That's Psalm 2. He shall destroy the arrogance of the sinner as a potter's jar. And then verse 24, with a rod of iron. Now, if we go back to Psalm 2 and read, how is this this son going to deal with the nations? It's with a rod of iron, and he's going to dash them like pottery. So the imagery is right out of Psalm 2. So it's, it's a rod of iron, which is usually the words of his mouth, the words of truth, and there's something about pottery being destroyed. Okay, let's, uh, I wanted to do, before you turn there, look at verse 26. Verse 26 says, And he shall gather, gather together a holy people, whom he shall lead in righteousness, and he shall judge the tribes of the people who has been made holy by the Lord his God. Now, do you remember the sentence when Jesus says to his disciples, you are going to judge the 12 tribes? And you think, what are they, what's he talking about? You're going to judge the 12 tribes. Well, that is a, that's a, it's an idea that's floating around. There's a couple different ancient documents that have the idea of judging the 12 tribes. That's not a new thought when Jesus says it. Their disciples are thinking of something that's going on or maybe a document that they've read before. So I just want to point out that's you can see some of this language pops up. All right, verse 32 and 33. And he will be a righteous king over them, taught of God. Does that sound like Jesus? Everything I teach you, I learn from my father, Jesus says. And is Jesus righteous? Yes, he is. Okay, so he will be a righteous king taught of God, and there shall be no unrighteousness in his days in their midst. For all shall be holy, and their king, the Lord Messiah. So there we get something about Messiah. Now look at verse 33. For he shall not put his trust in horse, rider, and bow. So what kind of king is he going to be? A king of war? No. King of peace. He's not coming in war. Interesting. He's going to show up and not put all of his trust in might. Nor shall he, this is continuing verse 33, nor shall he multiply for himself gold and silver for war, nor shall he gather confidence from a multitude for the day of battle. Okay, so we've got a righteous king, and it's a king of peace. And then finally, and this is probably the most interesting one, look at verse 36. He himself will be pure of what? Now, the, the reasoning is different than our New Testament. Our New Testament writers say he's sinless because he's now the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He is the sin, sinless offering that then our, that forgives our sins. That's how they interpret that theologically. This, they want a purely 
a sinless king because when he judges, he judges fairly. Now that's true too, though. Does Jesus judge fairly? Yeah, he's a righteous judge. And because he has no sin, he doesn't judge unfairly. And that's really important in a judge, isn't it? You want a judge that's not going to be biased towards you? But it's that, that little phrase, when you first read it, you think, that's kind of interesting. They want someone who's purely righteous, that doesn't have any sin. And so he himself will be pure from sin so that he may rule a great people. He will rebuke rulers and remove sinners from the might of his word. Now, just if you, if you wanted to put a little note there, read Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 and that sentence go hand in hand. Isaiah 11 says the Messiah is going to come and he's a righteous judge. And he's going to judge not by the things of this world, but by the things of heaven. Okay, and then 37. So this is the last one we'll look at. And relying upon his God, right? So Jesus relies upon his God. Throughout the days, he will not stumble. For God will make him mighty by the means of his Holy Spirit. So we can even see the language of Holy Spirit entering into the first century Judaism prior to our New Testament being written. The language is already there. There's already people thinking in these terms. And just so you know, scholars read this, this song, the Psalms of Solomon and say it was clearly written in Hebrew first because the copies we have are in Greek, but they're really poor Greek translations. So they can tell, now, this was originally in some other language, and as they're translating, you can see the, the bumpiness of the translation. Okay, so the last one, he's pure from sin and the Holy Spirit. Now, you can see then, as Jesus shows up, there are people expecting things, and they start to look at Jesus and think, aha, now, do all of them want him to fight a war? No, the zealots do. The zealots want a war. And they're the ones chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, waving their palm branches, go kill the Romans. But not everybody wants a, wants a war, and it's really, that's a very difficult nuance. Yes. Say again. Yes, the, tri- the triumphal entry, the people, yeah, because the zealots took for their symbol the palm branch, and they want a war, and they want Jesus as the king to come in and wipe out the Romans, and he doesn't. And he's very sad. That's when he, he weeps. Yeah, because he says, you don't, he says, uh, if only you had known what would bring you peace. It's not wanting war. War isn't going to bring you peace. Forgiveness and loving your enemy and all of that, that brings you true peace of God. Okay. Any questions about, this is a very small portion of a much larger document, but I just want to show you culturally that a lot of the language is there. For when Jesus pops up, that people are now calling out, he's the son of David. Yes. Exactly. I mean, it's now, it's not that the Holy Spirit, that the, old, the Old Testament treats the Holy Spirit a little different than, than we do. But you do see where God's Spirit lands on people. They don't use the phrase Holy Spirit. That's something that's, as time is going on, becomes something in their language. Right, there's, it seemed to be that it's, it's not the permanent Holy Spirit that we have after Acts 2. 
Yeah, ex well, exactly. And so part of what I think, and we touched on this last week, much of understanding this parable is not just a commentary on the first century corrupt priesthood. It's a commentary on any religious group that's in power. That when you say, I want all the power, and you make your position totalitarian, we know all things, and you can't tell us anything, well, you can, you can start becoming corrupted. And, of course, the church throughout history has at times become very corrupted. It's a commentary on how things can become corrupt instead of saying we're going to leave that to God. Yes. Yeah, so I think what, and we covered this uh, a few weeks back, he gets on the donkey to say, I am the king. It's just my way of the kingdom is not through violence. Well, he doesn't accept their, they, they're shouting Hosanna, and he does not accept that as, as their, well, meaning that they want war, and he shows up and goes to the cross, right? He, he rejects their plea for war. Yeah. So it's a triumphal entry that he's the king, but it's the, it's the opposite of what people group were looking for. And um, made a great point on that because how do the same people that praised him there suddenly against him here? Well, if you're a zealot and I say to you, nah, I'm not going to go along with your cause, you're not happy. People who are zealous get very upset when you don't support their zealotry. So you can see that they kind of turn on him as the week goes by and now say, get rid of this guy because he's not, he's not with, our, with our camp. Okay, we have to move on. Sorry. Great questions. Great questions. Okay, so this is kind of where we're at. We've just, the, the whole point of doing this is I want to show you how deep this parable is and the complexities. Now, remember, he's talking to religious leaders who know their Bible. When he talks to the regular people, he doesn't use as complex of parables. So he knows that they're going to pick up on all of this scripture of what's going on. And they do. They totally see what's happening. Now we have to finish up with who's this stone business, the stone. So the first one is, now don't turn there. I'm just because we don't have enough time. Psalm 118. You guys know this, so I'll just put it up on the, on the screen. The stone. Okay. So we have to figure out who are they talking about, the stone. The builders rejected. So who are the builders? Became the head of the cornerstone. Now. The original thinking about this, so this would be something in Jesus' day, is that the stone is David. What happened when they were selecting David? Who were the builders selecting David as king? Who first rejected David? Samuel and Jesse. So Samuel and Jesse... This is, how they, this is how they interpret the psalm. Samuel and Jesse are the builders, and they reject the stone that would become the head of the corner. They didn't pick David. God did. Only God could have picked him. So the Lord has done this. Not of man. The whole thing about David being chosen is because God did it. Now, let me show you uh, a, a piece of interpretation for this. And I believe I put this on your handout. This comes from, uh, it's a document that was put together later 
13th century, but it reflects earlier traditions from uh, rabbinic Judaism. And they write, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. And here they're going to explain it. The builders refer to Samuel and Jesse. The words has become the head of the corner referred to David because he became the king or the head of the kings. This is a, the Jewish thought on that on that psalm. So I just want you to know when Jesus says the stone the builders rejected, they're thinking David, but he's standing in front of them, right? So who's he telling you he is? Son of David. Yes, I'm that I'm now the stone the builders rejected. So he's using something that they all know to, to, to tell you more about his identity. Okay? So that's very quick. I mean, that's how quickly he just pulls in Psalm 118. I'm the stone the builders rejected. And now who's he calling the priests? The builders. Yeah. I'm going to become the head of the corner. You got it wrong. And I think we can all, all of us agree with that version of the psalm or the interpretation of the psalm. Now I want to deal with this sentence right here. Anyone who falls on this stone, the stone the builders rejected has become to the head of the corner, and if you fall on this stone, which Jesus is implying that's me, you'll be broken into pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Now how do we interpret this? Where do we, what do we interpret this meaning other than Jesus is, we know he's talking about himself. But let me show you the rabbinic, a rabbinic phrase. Now, this comes from a commentary on the book of Esther. So what happens in the book of Esther? Are the Jewish people, does someone try to attempt to wipe out the Jewish people? Yes, and how does it work out? Yeah, he tries to wipe out the Jewish people, but instead, it's a measure for measure, they get wiped out. Haman does, right? He builds the scaffolding to hang Mordecai, and then he gets hung on the same scaffolding. So here's the, uh, in the commentary on Esther, there's this phrase. If a stone falls on a pot, woe to the pot. True. So notice there's pottery imagery going on. If a pot falls on the stone, woe to the pot. In either case, woe to the pot. Yes. Woe to the pot, right? Either way, that pot's going to shatter. So here's, here, this is what, how they interpret this saying right here. That the stone is Israel. Just like in Esther, when someone tries to destroy Israel, what happens to them? They get destroyed. It's still happening today. What happened in the 1967 war? Israel gets attacked on all sides, and all sides lose. Woe to the pot. So if a stone, Israel, falls on a pot, which is the enemy, woe to the enemy, woe to the pot. If the pot falls on the, on the stone, which is Israel, woe to the pot. Either way, woe to the pot. What's Jesus saying in his little sentence? Who's he? He's the stone. And who are the priests? The enemy. You happy, priests? When someone calls the establishment the enemy of the people, they're not happy about it. 
So Jesus is saying, look, I'm this stone. You try to break me, you'll break. And I think this is a really good, even for us today, to remember that it doesn't matter how much, when people attack Jesus, they themselves will suffer. They're destroying themselves. And that's been that way since you can let the Bible go. It's like a lion. It doesn't need defending. People can attack it, and it will. Now, Peter says, defend your faith. Give a good reason why you believe. I agree with that. But anybody who's attacking God will somehow get destroyed themselves. And we should walk in faith and in peace on that, saying we don't need to be the ones, you know, completely out there all the time defending God. Okay. So Jesus says, look, if any enemy, anyone, falls on me, this stone, they'll be broken to pieces. And any enemy on whom it falls, which is Jesus, it will be crushed. In that little sentence, they know exactly what he's saying. I mean, it's utterly amazing, all of the different pieces that Jesus weaves into this. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a great little saying, woe to the pot. And all of that is imagery from Psalm 2. We see that same imagery that we read in Psalm one, or the Psalms of Solomon. So that's a very popular imagery of the enemy, the pottery. And, of course, if you go to Israel, by God, every place you go, there's broken pottery all over the place. No one even bothers to pick it up because it's just meaningless. It's just all over. All right. So here's the, let's summarize this. Jesus is true identity. Psalm 2, I'm the son. I'm the son of David. I'm what you guys call the son of David. I'm the Messiah. I, am, I bring in Psalm 118. Just like David was the stone the builders rejected, I'm the stone the builders rejected. And what happens when you try to come after me? Well, the stone is going to break you. So it's all about who he is wrapped up in this parable. What about the religious leaders? Well. He says, look, you guys, just like Psalm 2, are conspiring against me. And oh, by the way, just like in the Psalm of Solomon, you're the unrighteous leaders here in Jerusalem. If you use Psalm 118, they're the builders who rejected the stone that would become the head of the corner. And then finally, they're the enemy in which the stone falls on. It's absolutely, to me, Stunning how you could weave that much information into one parable, and they get it right away. Okay, any, I know that was a lot of information. Any questions? Yes. Yes. He says, it's obvious that God's in control. He sent his son, his son's in control. There's nothing to worry about. Why worry, right? 